As I said, I'm going to start with some free stuff for you tonight. How many of you know what science is learning about the human genome? Now, there's an excellent book right over there that talks about this. I highly recommend it, written by a very astute pastor in a local international church. Uh, but I hope you're mindful of these things. Uh, if you know anything about the science, you understand that DNA is the most amazingly compact, complex information storage and transmission system ever observed. You guys know this, right? You guys know the wonder of the body at the microscopic level. You know, an archaeologist will find two scratches, two random scratches on a cave wall, and he will infer intelligence, right? But science is looking at a 3.5 billion character um, communication system code within each of your 40 to 100 trillion cells in your body, and they don't infer intelligence. Obviously, this is uh, nonsense of the highest order. Um, in all honesty, if you don't know about this, I would encourage you to read it. You'll be in awe of God more. Um, but. Genetics alone has blown up micro, the, the micro-Darwinian myth. If you don't know that, you should know that. You should be able to speak about this um, in the world. Dar Darwinism, obviously, is the greatest engine for atheism in the world. And you and I need to be educated. One thing that uh, the human genome is revealing is that we have not evolved, but we have what? Devolved. And this is the reason I'm telling you this. We've not only devolved physically, we've devolved spiritually. Once we were holy and in intimate relationship with God, but we are no longer, right? There's a devolution that has taken place. And just as we have devolved physically, all you got to do is read the genetics. The geneticist can uh, extrapolate that there's probably been about a 200 generation, um, if, they look, if they look at the rate of, what's the word I want? The rate of quantifiable de degeneration in the human, hum, human genome, they can extrapolate that there have been only about 200 generations of humanity. I mean, this is just science. It's, it's hard science. I know you don't hear this in the media. I know it's not in the science books. I know it's, they're not teaching this in academia. But... This is a genetic fact. So my point in telling you all this is that we have devolved not only physically, but as you well know, spiritually. We have devolved spiritually. You guys know Romans 8, 19, and 22. Let me just read it to you. 19 to 22, Romans 8. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption. There it is. Slavery to corruption. This is devolution of the whole cosmos, including you and your genome. Slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. God's going to bring us out of devolution, physical and spiritual. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the, the pangs of childbirth together until now. Again, 
spiritual and physical devolution. It's in the Bible. I looked up this English word corruption. Here's what it means. To contaminate, to alter form, to distort, to contain errors and alteration. This is not only visible in us physically at every level, including the genome, it's visible in us spiritually as well. I think every self-aware, honest person knows this about themselves. We are not what we were meant to be. I think we all know this. I think if we think and we look around very much, we know that this is true. So how did we get broken? You know the story, Genesis chapter 3. God put us in paradise, but we decided we, once, we wanted something more. We decided to rebel against the good, benevolent, and gracious God. We only had one prohibition. There was just one. God had stacked the deck. There's no way we could mess this up. There's only one prohibition. There's not ten. There's not five. There's not two. There's no way to mess this up. But we did. We did. We ate of the tree of good and the knowledge of good and evil. So this sin against a good creator was so heinous that the whole cosmos was subject, as I just read to you from Romans 8, subject to corruption and futility. God put us in paradise. We broke it. We broke ourselves. We are not what we once were. Again, I think every thinking person knows this intuitively. Obviously, if we're biblically literate, we know it for sure. And here's the deal. The secular world thinks that science and technology can get us back to utopia. They think they can get us back to you. Oh, just a little more education, a little more technology. We can get back to utopia. We're never going to get back to utopia. There's no answer in science, technology, or secular education, there's no answer for the depraved heart of man. You know, I'm amused at the commentators you see in the media. Well, how can we fix society? How can we make it better? I guess these are legitimate questions on one level, but the problem is the heart of man. This is the problem. There's no answer in technology for our sin nature. There's no answer in secular education for the outworking of God's righteous judgment and fierce wrath. So, we can't sneak back into Eden. We can't go back. We can't go back. We can't get back in to the garden. We can't reverse it. We can't reverse the course of physical and spiritual devolution. But Jesus has done it, right? He has done it. He has redeemed his people. Here's what that means. Jesus has liberated us from the, the devolution. He has freed us. He has emancipated us. He has delivered us. He has rescued us. He has saved us from our corruption or altered, distorted form. He has done that. So, as God's people, we are devolving no more. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases that Romans 8 passage that I read to you just a few minutes ago. Listen to what he says. Just one sentence. This corruption mentioned in Romans 8 is not only around us, it's within us. It's what I'm saying to you. It's in every one of your cells. Geneticists can see it. We're not what Adam and Eve were physically. 
we're not even close to what they were physically. Of course, we have more accumulated knowledge, but they were vastly superior to us in a physical sense. Peterson says, this corruption is not only around us, it's within us, but the Spirit of God is, is arousing us within that we can return to a holy state. We can't go back to Eden, but God is re reconciling us to Himself. I love to think about it like this. I, I think I heard, I'm not sure who said this. But in our devolving state, sin is our affection. We love it. We love sin more than we love God. But in our regenerate state, in our born-again state, sin is our affliction. So I said all that to introduce this sermon, our sixth sermon as we tease out Psalm 117 to, uh, to bring you quite a few truths, right? So we're teasing it out. And that is my goal. You know, you know it already, Psalm 117. Let me, let me just read it to you again. Praise the Lord, all nations. Laud Him, all peoples. For His loving kindness is great toward us. And the truth of the Lord is everlasting. Praise the Lord. So we've been reviewing these points. I, I'm going to review them again because the best way to teach is repetition. I, I hope by now you could repeat them back to me. But I am going to repeat, repeat just a few points that we've been making on Psalm 117. Um, when God calls us to praise Him, He's calling us to come and enjoy Him, to incarnate the praise. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you get the point. So, the call to praise God is the highest and best invitation a human being can receive. It's what Psalm 117 is all about. Praise is the consummation and climax of true joy. We are unapologetic. We have become Christian hedonists. Our highest pleasure is in God. And I just want to make sure we understand what I mean by the word tease. I'm trying to more fully explain what it means to actually praise God. When, when, when the psalmist commands us to do this, what does it mean? It's not mouthing words. I'm going to keep saying this to you. It's not mouthing words. It's what's in the minutiae of your life, beloved. It's what's in the minutiae of your life. So as we've looked at in the context of worship, we're to be fierce in praise. In the context of submission, we're to be fierce in obedience. In the context of cruelty and abuse, we're to be fierce in persecution. In the context of believing God's promises, we are to be fierce in expectation. It's what we said last week. We can do all He says because He will do all He says. We are not, as John Piper says, only moderately interested in Christ. We are utterly in love with Him, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So, this sermon, you 
and I are to be fierce in holiness. So, I'm going to try to explain that a little bit. But God has called us into holiness. I don't know if you noticed on the PowerPoint, Chinelo, that I had the verse on the opening PowerPoint slide was, Be holy, for I am holy. I think that's 1 Peter, yes, 1 Peter 1.16. God calls us to be holy. And two things are true for those of us who are in Christ. We are positionally holy, right? We, in Christ, we are holy. We are positionally holy. It's a done deal. The second thing is we are being made holy as we cooperate with the Holy Spirit in the process called, who knows, sanctification. God is doing it, but you must do it. And I'm going to give you textual, textual and scriptural grounds for that. God is doing it, but you must do it. I love this thought. <laughs> God means for you to be fiercely holy. Are you fighting for that in your personal life? Are you fighting for holiness in your life? When I read that 1 Peter 1.16 verse the first time, I recall, Be holy for I am holy. Um, yeah, I had a lot of anxiety about it because I knew I wasn't holy. But then I... I learned that I was positionally holy in God, and that relieved a lot of my anxiety. And then I learned that there's the process of sanctification. The problem with holiness, when I first heard the word, obviously, was I, th I had the wrong, uh, what shall I say, concept of the term. I thought it meant sitting in church with a, star with a starch collar, chanting, you know, Mindless repetition, like a monk. My view of holiness, and I want you to hear me say this, my view of holiness was, was that it was tiresome and dutiful and disagreeable. And I think some of you, I think some of you might feel that way, right? Please come in, please. You might, when you think of the word holy, you're thinking wrongly about it. Okay? You're thinking wrongly about it. You think it's sitting in church. You think it's dutiful. You think it's disagreeable. You think it's going to hold you back. You think it's going to shackle you and stymie you. You think it's religion. That's not what the holiness is that God is calling us to, right? Holiness is going back to Eden. That's what holiness is for the believer. It's unhindered intimacy with the most beautiful being in the cosmos. That's what holiness is. It's going back home. It's becoming what you were meant to be. That's what holiness is. It's not some religious thing. Okay? So get that out of your head. It's not some dead, dry, brain dead, you know, heart dead, perfunctory thing that we do. Holiness is a call back to Eden, beloved. And you should be excited about it. You should be excited about it. So let me ask you, are you excited about your holiness? Are you excited about being fierce in holiness? Are you excited about it? God means for you to be excited about it. You're going back to Eden. That's one way to say it. It's not religion. It's intimacy with God.
When God says, be holy, for I am holy, that's the invitation. Come and be intimate with me. Some of you, like me, as a young man, I had a complete false notion of what holiness meant. And it sounded like a drag to me. If that's the concept you still have, you've got the wrong... You've got, you've got a worldly concept of what holiness is. Okay, I'm going to give you a great quote by one of my favorite theologians. I'm going to read you a short paragraph. Jonathan Edwards, I want you to listen. Listen to what he says. I want you to walk out of here with this. All right? When you think of holiness, listen. We drink in strange notions of holiness from our childhood. That's what I did. I just thought it was religion. As if it were a melancholy, listen, a melancholy, morose, sour, and unpleasant thing. But there is nothing in it but what is sweet and ravishingly lovely. It is the highest beauty and amiableness vastly above all other beauties. Tis of a sweet, pleasant, charming, lovely, delightful, serene, calm, and still nature. It makes the soul like a delightful garden planted by God. That's what holiness is. You should want it badly. You should be working for it. You should be striving for it. You should be praying about it. You should be actively repenting of your sin. You should be aggressively repenting of your sin. God is calling you into holiness, okay? He's calling you into holiness. That is intimacy with God. It's going back to the garden. That's what it means. Yes, you're saved and positionally holy in Christ, but in conduct, He's calling you back to Himself. This is power. It's a powerful way to think about it, beloved. God means for you to be fierce in holiness, and you won't be if you have some morose, uh, stilted, unbiblical definition of what holiness is in your life. One of the extended or expanded meanings of both the Greek and Hebrew words that are translated holy is beauty. It is beauty. It's that Isaiah 6 and... Um, Revelation, is it four? Yes. Where the living creatures are, are, are crying out to God, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is holy. One thing they're saying there is He's beautiful. He's magnificent. He's perfect. He's pure. He's glorious. That's what He's calling you to. You think holiness is morose and sour and a drag? You've not understood You've not understood what God's calling you to. He's calling you into breathtaking beauty and intimacy with Him. I, always, I have to share this with you because it's one of my favorite stories. Some of you probably, some of you may not have heard it. But in seminary, this, looking at this Revelation 4 text where the, the, the creatures with, their eye, with eyes all over and within them looking at God singing to God, holy, holy, holy. Um, my seminary professor said, if you tapped one on the shoulder, do you think he would turn around? No. He's not going to turn around and talk to you. <laughs> He's looking at God. Pure ecstasy in holy communion with God.
He's not going to turn around and talk to you. I never forget when he said that. That was a captivating thought to me. Beloved, I know some of you may have a dry opinion of what holiness is. Some of you may have a dry opinion about sanctification. It's my goal to remedy that today, tonight. I want to remedy that. If that's your condition, I pray God will heal you tonight. That you won't see holiness again as a sour thing. But as a very desirable thing. A thing that you will pursue with all your might. And anything that hinders you from it, you will excise from your life. You will put it down and you will move on. It's holding you back, right? Anything that holds you back from holiness is to your detriment. And it, is, it will steal your joy. You guys that have been around long enough and have known Christ for a while, you know what real sin does in your life. You know what it does. It steals every fiber of the joy in life you have in your soul. God says, be holy for I am holy. It's a powerful command. It's a powerful admonition. So God is bringing us back to what we were originally designed to be. To be holy. To behold and enjoy the beauty of God. Let me quote C.S. Lewis real quick. I've always loved this quote as well. We do not merely want to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words. We want to be united with the beauty we see. We want to pass into it. We want to receive it into ourselves. We want to bathe in it. We want to become part of it. I'm not going to go there. Well, yes, I am. I am going to go there. You don't have to turn with me if you don't want to. John 17, real quick. Listen to these words of Jesus. John 17, real quick, verse 21. John 17, verse 21. Listen to how he prays for us. He prays to the Father that we may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they, that's us, also may be in us, that the world may believe, may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. It's what C.S. Lewis is talking about. It's a call to holiness that we'll be one with the Father and the Son. We'll be in, like, you know, someone said, the fourth member of the Trinity. We're the fourth member of the Trinity in some mysterious way that I can't even begin to understand. They may be in us, he says, that the world might believe that you sent me and the glory which you have given me, I give to them. He's talking about holiness, beloved. He's talking about holiness. What a great opportunity for you and I to, to take inventory tonight. Am I moving toward holiness or not? What is it in my life that hinders me from holiness? What is it? I say kill it. Kill it. This week, kill it. Go to work. Go home. 
Get alone with God. Kill what you need to kill. Get it out of your life. And I know there's some things that are ingrained in us. Some things are constitutional. And you're going to have a long fight, but get it out. Declare war on whatever it is that keeps you from holy intimacy with God. Declare war on it and win the battle. Beloved, God is inviting us to taste the holiness and beauty of Jesus Christ. We are to be reconciled to, to our Creator. We are to be captivated by Him. He calls us to pursue holiness and the beauty that is only found in Him. Again, the Bible talks about this. The, the, the word the Bible uses is sanctification. Sanctification. Romans 8.21 again. The redeemed are headed toward the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This is our inheritance. Removed from devolution, removed from death, removed from hell, right? You know, what is hell? Part of what hell is, is eternal devolution. It never stops getting worse. For a billion eternities, it just never stops getting worse. Again, Romans 8, 21. But we are headed toward the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So please get it out of your head that holiness is a melancholy burden. It's the greatest invitation you've ever had. And you're not thinking rightly and you're not thinking biblically and you're not thinking in a way that pleases God if you don't think this way. If you see holiness as a burden... <laughs> Yes, I'm afraid you haven't understood much of what the Bible is talking about. So the real go with Jesus Christians, they're moving toward the new paradise, the new heaven and the new earth. We are being transformed by the God initiated and God empowered work called sanctification. So now I want to talk about your responsibility. I want to just delineate a little bit the biblical truth that God is sovereign and you're responsible. This is very important for us to understand and remember if we are going to be fierce in holiness. You know that we're a church that preaches all the Bible, even the parts that many people um, choose to hate or dislike or reject. God is sovereign in the salvation of His people. He's sovereign. Before the foundation of the world, God elects His people. You can hate it. You can reject it. It's what He says. We embrace it. We preach it. Right? We love it. And no man should stand in a pulpit who can't preach that. It's what God says. Preach it. Right? God is sovereign, but oh, guess what? The Bible says you're responsible to respond in faith to the invitation of God. God is sovereign. You are responsible. That's in salvation, but guess, guess what? It's also in sanctification. It's also true in sanctification. God has done a sovereign miracle in us. To save us, but you must respond. The best place to go for this, 
And if you don't know this passage, you can write, jot it down because I want to make sure you're familiar with this passage. I mean, most of you will be. Philippians 2, 12 through 13. You know what it says. God says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you. God's at work in you. So work it out, right? You work it out. God's at work in you. So you work it out. And then he goes on. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God's working for your good pleasure. And he's inviting you into, you know, the, the, the thing Jesus says in John 17. Into his glory and joy, right? Into divine pleasure. American preacher John MacArthur says it like this. I, I love this. The believer must work out what God works in. If you don't work out... If there's no working out of what allegedly God has worked in, you're obviously not a Christian. It's just, it's just a fact. The true believer will work out the miracle. The true believer will work it out. We're always in the Romans 7 fight. It's called sanctification. God means for you to be fierce in that fight for holiness. It's what he's calling us to. And I'm going to quote Piper again. Have I quoted him yet? I think I have. I'm quoting him again. Yes, Karen, I'm going to quote Piper again. It's not my fault. He says good stuff. But I love how he talks about this. Listen, listen to this. God works the miracle of salvation and sanctification. And you act it out. I love this. Sovereignty, responsibility. You must act it out. If you don't act it out, it's not real. It's just church going. It's just religion. God will work it in, but if God has worked it in, you must work it out. Christianity is always visible. It's always <clears throat> visible in the life. You act it out. He says, God produces it. You must perform it. I love this. If you don't use your will to act out the miracle, there is no miracle. God's sovereign enablement of holiness does not contradict the act, uh, the act of duty. It creates it. There's a, there's a duty for the born again to be changed and to allow holiness to begin to flow out of their life. That the beauty... And the majesty and the wonder of the salvation of Jesus Christ is actually visible in your life. There's this aroma, right? It's the aroma coming off you. That born again aroma. It's how sanctification works. Here's the deal. God is generous, right? And he gives you generosity. If you're born again, he's given you generosity. But you must give. It's not, it's not God's job to give your money. It's your job to give your money, your time, your resources, your talents to further his work, right? That's your job. God gives you his mercy, but you're the one that has to turn the other cheek. You have to do it. God's not going to do it for you. You know, I hear this all the time. Well, I'm going to wait for, for God to, to show me what to do. Well, in, you know, probably 90% of the times or cases, we already know what we've been told to do. You must do it. God gives you his courage. 
but you're the one that must radically obey. Sovereignty, responsibility. I love it. It's beautiful. There's a little mystery there. There's some tension there. I love this truth. Beloved, God is calling you to holiness. It's not some dry, stale, stifling, constraining, religious burden. It's life. It's joy. It's beauty. It's intimacy. It's spiritual adventure with God. I wish someone had told me what holiness was back in the dead church I was born again in. But nobody knew. Nobody could tell you what. Nobody could tell you in the church I grew up in. No one could tell you what holiness was really all about. And what this, you know, again, Psalm 117, what this invitation to praise God really was about. No one could tell you. Nobody knew. Except a handful of people. And they didn't have the pulpit. And I thought, well, holiness is just, it's a drag. I wasted some years thinking that way. But praise God, He called me out of my ignorance. You guys know the famous sermon, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Charles Wesley says, He breaks the power of canceled sin. We're holy in Christ. The sin is canceled. And He breaks the power. Why? So you can be holy for your for your joy and for your witness in the world that you can be holy. People, can see, people in your orbit can see holiness is a real thing. Real Christians are holy. Are they perfect? No. But they're giving off this aura of holiness. They smell like God. In the way they live, they smell like God. In the way they talk, they smell like God. In the way they surf the internet, they smell like God. So God does the miracle. And then we are freed up to incarnate the miracle. It's holiness. <laughs> it's holiness. You know, an unregenerate person, he can define the word, but he doesn't have a clue what it means. He doesn't have a clue. All right, Piper, one more time for Piper. Here we go. Don't let salvation remain a vague, distant outcome. Man, I hear this a lot, right? Tell me about your salvation. Well, I prayed the prayer when I was eight and I got baptized. Well, what's happened since then? Not much. Don't let that be your, don't let that be your testimony, beloved. Here's the, here's the quote. Don't let salvation remain a vague, distant outcome. Let it be a daily deliverance from sin. Act your deliverance. Act your victory. Act your dethroning and killing of sin in your life. Do it. Let it be your top priority. If, if it's not your top priority, you have no understanding of how heinous sin is before God. There's like this glib, casual attitude about sin in the church, in the modern church. And I know it's a stench in the nostrils of God. Beloved, He's called you into holiness. 
And He means for you to follow Him into it. He means for each of us to follow Him into it. So God does the miracle. And He expects us to incarnate, incarnate it. So we get to be holy, beloved. We get to be enveloped in the ever-increasing beauty and intimacy of God. We have this ever-expanding freedom in God's redemption. We don't have to die. We, we don't have to live like everyone else in the world. We can live toward God. We can move toward God. We can enjoy God. It's what Psalm 117 is all about. Paul talks about this God-granted freedom, liberty, power, and faculty to put down our joy-stealing sins and embrace the satisfying pleasure of holiness. I'm going to read three texts to you and I'll be done. Okay? Sit back and listen. You can go look at the text later. Or if you want my notes, I'll send them to you. Listen to what, listen to what, what God says to the Apostle Paul. Romans 6. Excerpts from Romans 6. The Apostle writes, <clears throat> Consider yourselves dead to sin. I mean, that's, that's a whole sermon right there, right? Consider yourself dead to it. You're dead to it. You say, Jim, it still talks to me. Well, kill it. Do what you have to do to kill it. Consider yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourself to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So when this, the desire to sin comes, he's telling you to do the exact opposite, right? Turn away from that and move toward God. For sin shall not be your master. If you're a Christian, sin shall not be your master. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin... You became obedient, listen to this, from the heart. This is a heart thing. This is not a head thing. I want it. I want righteousness. I want holiness. I want it from my heart. Not mentally, I want it from my heart. Right? And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification but now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome being eternal life. You know, some people say, well, I want eternal life. Really? I don't see that in your life at all. And I'm not talking to you. I'm just talking like this happens a lot in conversations with people, right? They, they say, yeah, I want that. Well, I don't see it in your life. You must not really want it. You must not want it very badly. There's no evidence in your life that you want it, right? Next text, Romans 8. 
Paul writes, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has, here it is, set you free from the law of sin and of death. You've been set free, beloved. Stop it. Stop it. Whatever it is, stop it. Move on. And here's the truth. Sanctification, those of you who are somewhat mature, you understand. <laughs> you, you finally get the victory. And it's, it's, you put it down. There's another one right in front of you, right? And it gets harder and harder and harder because they become constitutional. They're in there, man. Karen and I were talking about my impatience. Yeah, I'm constitutionally impatient sometimes. I'm working on that. Karen says, I'm not working hard enough. But I'm working on that, right? I'm working on that. The deeper you go with God, the harder it is. The more deeply rooted the sin is. But at least you're getting rid of the stupid stuff, right? That if you just put like an ounce of energy into it, you could get rid of. Just a, a little bit of conviction, just a little bit of determination. Put it down, right? For we do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. I mean, here's the definition between a believer and unbeliever. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, and the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. And finally, another excerpt from Romans 8. The apostle writes, So then, brethren, <clears throat> we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Do you hear it? God did it, but you must do it. It's all over the Bible. God did it, but you must do it. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery. Hey, you're not a slave to this. It's because you want to. If you're still entangled in deep sin, it's what you want. You have the power to get out. You have the power to, the, to begin that process. Yeah, sometimes it's a war. But you have the power. <laughs> you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. You've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, we are heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. I'm just going to close with this. Um, I've shared it with you before. Eugene Peterson in the Message Bible, he paraphrases Romans 8.15 in a really wonderful way. Just listen. We'll be done. He writes, Okay, just remember, God did it, but you must do it. Sovereignty, responsibility. And there are people in the church who hate this. They won't teach it. That's not a church. 
If you can't teach the Word of God with integrity, you're, you are not a church. I, you're, you're something else. I don't know what to call you, but you're not a church. And there's other people in, in the so-called church who say, well, this saves you. You got to do this. this it's, it's the works. It's your goodness. Wrong. That's not the church either. You need the sovereign work of God, and then you must incarnate it. That's the church. That's the message of the Bible. It's unmistakable for anyone, I think, who can, who, who, who can read at an eighth grade level. Maybe younger. You know, the Gospel of John's written at a, at a sixth grade level in the Greek. Romans 8.15, the Message Bible. The resurrection life you received from God is not a, oh, timid, it's not a timid, grave-tending life. Holiness is not sour, it is not morose, it is not melancholy. You've not been called to a grave-tending life. It's adventurously expectant, Peterson says, greeting God with a childlike, what's next, Papa? I love that. I love that. Beloved, we get to be holy. It's not a timid, grave-tending kind of life. It's an escape from corruption, despair, death, hell, and devolution. It's the pathway to God-sized life, fullness, delight, and joy. It's the adventurously expectant life of walking with God. It's learning to be fierce every day in holiness. And you can't passively want to be holy. It will never passively happen. It will never passively, passively happen. God is doing it, but you must do it. And if you're not doing it, God didn't do it. Holiness, beloved. It's beauty. It's intimacy. It's adventure with God. This is what He's calling us to. Let's pray together.